need you to open up your Bible to John chapter 4, which is where we will be. Uh, we are approaching May, which is Foster Care Awareness Month. Uh, you will not hear this on most of your local news channels. You won't see flags waved uh, from buildings. You won't see it advertised on public transportation. However, um, Foster Care Awareness Month is through the month of May. Two big things coming up that I want you to be aware of is Hope for the Journey Conference. What is that? It's a conference that we host here. We've hosted it for years and years, and it is targeted at serving the foster parents of our community and adoptive parents of our community. And um, as Chuck and Sharon just shared, part of why I love Sharon and Chuck's testimony about this is they are not foster parents. They are not adoptive parents. Their church was calling them to get this training to gain an understanding of what it might be like to parent um, children who have severe trauma in their early years. And so they engaged in that because their church was engaged in that um, and have come away saying, wow, it's, it's really about connecting with people and some of that. So, um, so two big messages. One is, if you serve in family ministry, um, our goal is 100% of our servants in family ministry, birth through uh, elementary and really through middle school, would have this training and have this understanding. Uh, we are providing for the funds for that. So we're paying the, the fee for you to go. Um, but the second thing that you can do is you can serve at it. Um, Ellie, raise your hand really quick. Ellie's over there. And Ellie has set up something that's already gone live, and that is something on Church Center that says, I want to serve at um, Hope for the Journey. And that can mean um, hosting people. It can mean bringing, bringing food. It can mean set up the night before and the day after. So it's Friday, May 6th um, through Saturday, May 7th. Okay. The second thing is that uh, Foster the City, an organization we partner with, um, has been putting out a prayer guide in the month of May, and for 31 days straight, uh, I am calling our church, I will be participating as well, to pray around this area, God's heart for foster um, children, um, every day in the month of May. And what I love about this prayer guide is it's digital, so it lives on my phone. Um, it's also going to be in print form. We'll bring some print form for those of you who hate digital. Um, we'll have that available for you. But it gives you one area of um, to, to, to pray about, and then a scripture verse each and every day for 31 days in May. Really great way just to train our collective uh, prayers around this uh, sort of neglected, unseen part of our community. All right, um, let me start with this. First of all, um, we had some new members celebrated on Easter Sunday. Um, Andres, I don't have the picture with me. Was it four new members? Four new members um, to our church family, so give it up for that. And one of them is sitting right here. Sylvia, raise your hand. Sylvia has the superpower. Sylvia has the superpower of being bilingual. So she, uh, she often does a double dose here at Neighborhood Bible Church, doing the English and Spanish. Overjoyed at that. I said, man, send me a picture, Andres. We're so excited about that. So I just wanted to make sure that you guys uh, got to see that, since most of us don't go to Spanish service. Uh, let me show you a picture of something that we're um, really passionate about right here, and it's just, it's just sort of a visual me metaphor of what it looks like to be a disciple of Jesus. And um, what I wanted to show you and highlight for you here is this. We, we've talked about share the last couple of weeks prior to Easter, and, um, and this week I want to talk very specifically about worship. 
What you see here is sort of a visual representation that God uh, begins our life in him with being born again. It's a work of God, and God initiates worship. We'll kind of talk about that. Um, But the idea of worship, a growing relationship with God, never ends. So it's not like we get saved, we're in relationship with God. It's like any real relationship. You never stop growing or moving away in that relationship. And in fact, worship is like a fountain that, that waters the other two. God takes us not in just a relationship with himself, but he puts us in a spiritual family. It's called a church. We use the word community for that. And worship and community have a point. That is that we are to be a blessing to the nations. That we are to be good stewards of our gifts, good stewards of our resources, good stewards of the treasure that we hold, namely the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ. Make sense? So we're going to talk about this worship aspect this morning. And by worship, I do not mean singing in church. By worship, I'm not talking about a genre of music in Spotify. I'm talking about something far different, far far broader than that. So what I'm calling this morning is worship well. And we're going to sort of take these two words that we see a lot um, in, in John 4 here, and we're going to let them teach us. So we have this encounter of Jesus with the woman at the well. If you've been around church for any length of time, you remember, oh, Jesus with the woman at the well. Oh, yeah, I've heard that story. We're going to look at that uh, this morning. Their discussion covers quite a bit of ground, but it lands on something that is so central and so instructive for all disciples of Jesus Christ, that of true worship. What does true worship look like? That's where we're going to get to. So John chapter 4, starting in verse 3, follow along with me. There's nothing on the screen to look at. Look at your Bible. There's one sitting in front of you if you'd open it up to it. But John chapter 4 verse 3 says this, He left Judea and departed again for Galilee, and he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob's well was there. So Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. That's noontime, midday. A woman from Samaria came to draw water. Jesus said to her, give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. (laughs) The Samaritan woman said to him, how is it that you, a Jew, ask me for a drink? A woman of Samaria. And then the author, John, gives us a little clue of what's going on. He says as an editorial, for Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. So first and foremost, if you want to write anything down, write this down. Worship is initiated by God. Worship is initiated by God. Jesus goes to meet this woman. Jesus initiates the conversation with this woman. Jesus initiates the relationship with this woman. He still does. This is how God works. Do you know that there's no one that seeks God? No one initiates true worship of God on their own. Dead, spiritually dead people, which we're born into, they don't do that. So any sense of that is for sure a work of God. Jews had no dealings with Samaritans. Beyond that, men and women who didn't know each other would never have had casual conversation like this or a request made like this. So there's giant divides, and yet we see Jesus 
pursuing her. That's why she was astonished. How is it that you're asking me for a drink? A Samaritan woman. Two giant walls that would not have been crossed in in this culture. Let me give you a little hint. If you are here this morning and you have any concern whatsoever for, I want to make sure I'm worshiping in a true way, take that as an absolute sure sign that God's Holy Spirit is active in you. If you have no concern for true worship, all you're doing is living in the flesh. We were born in sin. None of us go and seek after God. If we have a concern, am I doing it right? Am I worshiping the way God wants me to worship? That itself is a gift. It's an encouragement. That must be God initiating that in you because none of us cares about these things on our own. I'm overjoyed when I look out and see your faces joining me here on a Sunday morning. We are voting with our feet today that it matters that we gather with the people of God in season and out of season. I know some of you are on an absolute mountaintop. Some of you are in the lowest valley you've ever walked through. Some of you, again, it's I-5 near Bakersfield. You're just like, yeah, just kind of middle of the road, kind of apathetic. And yet here we are week after week after week concerning ourselves with worshiping God. I'm going to take your brains and I'm going to get you thinking about the idea of wells this morning, okay? We've got Jacob's well here and Jesus meeting a woman at the well, and so it's going to kind of lodge in your brain. That's my hope, at least. And so we're going to take the word well and kind of think of it in some different ways. If you're taking notes, write this down. Worship well means worship good. Well can mean good, appropriate, satisfactory. And what that says to us is there must be wrong ways to worship. It's not just a free-for-all. We don't just get to define how we worship God and call it good. The Bible doesn't allow for that. Jesus doesn't allow for that. If you're in a family, you understand something, that families tend to fight, right? All families fight. If your family fights, you're normal. I don't know what you fight about, Maybe it's the direction of the toilet paper, like whether it should hang this way or hang underneath. Uh, Maybe it's like about time and schedule. Once in a great while, families fight about money, if you can believe that. Shocker. How about who gets the remote? Anyone in your family fight over who gets the remote? Don't raise your hand. Don't nudge. Don't point. Yeah, that's, that's true. Holidays? Man, holidays can stir up some doozies between families. Then you get the extended ones involved. How about the in laws? In-law jokes are, are a joke for, for a reason, right? There's, there's tension that can go on there. How about whose turn it is? Years ago, we went to the system that Mary Ann's ice cream used to use. We just have a number system. Just take a number. No, I'm not kidding. I mean, I'm, I am kidding. I think we should have done that. Might have saved some, some fights. Let me just say this. If you're new to the Christian family or you're a guest here this morning, I have a little secret for you. Christians fight about worship. Christians fight about worship. And here's what's interesting. It's not the bigger picture of worship. We love to fight and tangle about church service music. That's what we fight about. Man, there's some good ones. I met with a pastor this week, and his church has kind of two separate churches going on. And instead of it being a Spanish-English language divide, you know what the language barrier is? Musical taste. You know what this pastor's heart was? He's pleading. He's saying, it is time to come back together. 
His hope was, man, maybe, uh, you know, maybe COVID did something to kind of change that. We fight. I've grown up in this. We fight about music. By the way, it's been going for a really, really long time. We inherited this. Anyone ever hear of Martin Luther? Raise your hand if you've heard of Martin Luther before. Uh, This guy lived a really long time. Not Martin Luther King Jr. He lived not so long ago. Martin Luther lived a really long time ago. In an introduction to a collection of songs that he wrote, listen to this. He says, Anyone who didn't appreciate the beauty of these multi-part pieces and view them as a gift from God must be a clodhopper indeed and does not deserve to be called a human being. He should be permitted to hear nothing but the braying of asses and the grunting of hogs. Father of the Reformation right there. Isn't it funny how we idolize people of the past? What Martin Luther lacked in tact, he more than made up for in passion, right? (laughs) 200 years later, American churches debated the merit of singing by ear or by note. Meanwhile, British churches were arguing over whether we should use hymns of human composure, particularly those of that rabble-rouser Isaac Watts. Many of the songs we sing, by the way, as hymns are Isaac Watts. I think that's the Americans getting a jab back at the British. Oh, yeah, we'll take his hymns. hundred years after Watts died, people would walk out of a service if someone started singing anything except the psalms from our scripture set to music. God help us as a church family. Now, we fight about things that we care about. If we didn't care about God, if we didn't care about worship, we would just like throw up our hands and go, well, it doesn't really matter. This does really matter. But I think like in families, we fight about the petty things and miss the true things. So what do you prioritize in worship? What's important to you? How do you evaluate a church service? If you walk out of here or you go visit a church, some of you are moving. People are moving all the time. I'm looking at two people in this room who will not be here probably by the end of summer. How are you going to evaluate your next church? How does God evaluate that church, our church, this worship service? Can we know these things? That's what we're going to look at this morning. What we know is that worship is so much more than an event or a place or music. How can we know the fences and freedom when it comes to worship? The Bible. The Bible that you're holding in your hand is a worship book. The Bible is a worship book. God commands worship. God deserves worship, and we need to give it. We just sang, we were made to worship. Actually, we didn't. That's a different Tomlin song. We were made to worship, and we're compelled to sing. All of those have scriptures that are attached to it. Lots of fighting that goes on in churches, by the way, comes when we elevate personal taste and we supplant it with divine command. So in other words, we say that our personal taste is thus saith the Lord. And whenever we get to that place, we ought to be challenged in our thinking of saying, where is it that God says that? So we can be really crystal clear on that. And if it's personal taste, fine. If it's a command from the Lord, we better stop everything and say, nope, we all agree on that interpretation. That's the way it goes. So when personal taste is elevated to divine Uh, command, we have fights. But the second reason why we fight is this, that worship of God is both objective and subjective. I would say it this way, it's part art 
and it's part science. The knowledge of God is very far from the love of Him. You know what I love about this? Is this is talking a little bit more uh, touchy-feely, the love of Him. And yet this is from Blaise Pascal, 17th century scientist, mathematician. Some of my favorite people are people who can marry really good intellect and thought, and yet their heart pours out emotion and subjective kinds of statements about God. There are objective truths, revealed realities that we can know beyond the shadow of a doubt. In those things, I think we ought to be crazy bold and say, no, 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 no. I know God thinks this way. I know God says to do this. Well, how can you know? Because he made it crystal clear. He thought it was so important, he wrote it down. And we can't misinterpret it. But there are many, many other things that we don't know. From the beginning, God set worship in this context of a love relationship. And relationship means it's complete with emotions and passion and confusion. Doesn't that accompany your relationships? All of that. How about cycles, right? Cycles in relationship, that's all there. We can worship well because God has told us how to worship well. We just finished the series in 1 Timothy. We know how to behave in the household of God, the church. Why? Because God told us how. Is 1 Timothy the only book? No. But 1 Timothy overlaid with all the other books. We have a really clear uh, instruction on what we're supposed to do when we gather, on how we're to treat one another, on how we're to go at each other when something goes wrong. So it is with worship. Let me have you either turn or listen carefully to Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4. It's written down in your notes, so you can circle it and go back to this. But I did a whole paper on this in college. It's called the Shema. And to this day, Jews will recite the Shema. They will say this out loud every single morning. Deuteronomy 6, 4 says this. Hear, O Israel... The Lord our God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit down in the house. You shall talk of them when you walk on the way and when you lie down and when you rise. You shall bind them as a sign on your hand and they shall be as frontlets between your eyes. You shall write them on the doorposts of your house and on your gates. This was the way of the Jews. This was God's people, God, God giving this to them. And they would say this over and over so they wouldn't forget it. Now, this resulted in quite an array of worship expression. As you look at the Old Testament worship and New Testament worship, you see both quiet and very expressive, loud worship. Here's a couple highlights. We see in the scriptures the spontaneous, sort of uncontrolled worship, almost like a sneeze reflex, that can often just uh, result in all kinds of things, people falling down in awe. Right? They can't help themselves. Maybe you've cried uncontrollably in a church service. You're not even sure why. How about the I can't possibly hold this in kind of praise? Remember the woman who pours all that expensive uh, perfume at Jesus' feet? Why was she doing it? She was worshiping. She found Jesus worthy, worth it. And so this, 
this year's worth of wage type perfume that she didn't have the money probably to spare. She said, it's all yours. And I think she felt like she made a good trade. How about that overwhelming rushing river of emotion that comes pouring out of your life, whether it's convenient, cool, dignified or not? Remember King David dancing in praise after a victory, and he does it in this way that is not cool for a king to act. But he doesn't care. He doesn't care what people think of him. So those are all big, loud, expressive. How about this? He leads me beside quiet waters. What's that from? Psalm 23. He leads me beside quiet waters. You know, a lot of times that he leads me beside quiet waters moments are invisible to everyone but you and God. This can happen on public transportation, in line at Target. It can happen on a walk through your neighborhood. Guess what? It can happen right here at church. A moment of praise that is just uncontained, but no one else sees it because it's just between you and God. It could be something the preacher said or the text said or the song said or a prayer said that you go, no way. God, you see me personally. It can't possibly be true that they know what I've been going through this word this week and that exact word and that exact phrase and that text came up. I love those stories, by the way. You guys share these with me all the time. There's no possible way you could have known my quiet time last Tuesday, but I read that same text. I came to that same conclusion, and my spirit agreed with your spirit right in the middle of your second point of the sermon. I almost wanted to jump up and shout, but I contained myself. I say, well, praise God. Sounds like we have the same spirit at work in us. What was Jesus' priority? Can we know Jesus' priority in worship? Listen to Mark chapter 12. People asked him what the greatest commandment was. What does he answer with but the Shema? Jesus answered, Mark 12, 29. The most important is, now he quotes Deuteronomy 6, 4. Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. And you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, all your soul, all your mind, and with all your strength. And then he ties in an important clue for worship of why this can't be about singing, of why it certainly must not be contained in this building. He says, commandment singular. Listen carefully. And the second is this, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. There is no other commandment greater than these. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. He blends these into something. You want to you think about what worship is like. It's that. Do that. A simple thing that I like to think about is heartfelt worship. Worship that honors God is worship that puts a smile on God's face. Does God really have a face that he smiles and has giant teeth? No. But we all get that, don't we? Worship that you just go, man, it just puts a smile on your face. Parents, every parent, grandparent in this room gets this. Things that your kid does, and it just, it just brings delight. You can't even help it. Loving God, obeying God, spills way beyond the church. All right, so we can worship God well because he's told us where some of the fences and freedoms are. By the way, this requires heavy lifting. This is Christian work, not just pastor work, and not just worship leader work. 
This is Christian work to read your Bibles and get a heart, a sense of what is true worship really about. Am I inbounds or out of bounds? Those of you going to new churches, I love it when people say, hey, can you listen to a few of these sermons? See if they sound doctrinally correct. See if I'm missing anything. They don't put it on me and say, hey, can you pick a church out for me? I say, no, you got to pick a church out for yourself. I'll gladly talk with your pastor and leadership. I think you're really wise to go beyond a doctrinal statement. I had a 45-minute conversation with a woman this week who was seeking out our church, and she had a list of questions way beyond our doctrinal statement. You can read a doctrinal statement and then go, yeah, but that's not really what I'm being taught. That's not really what's being modeled to me. I think those are wildly important things to do. It's Christian work to understand what godly worship looks like. Here's number two if you're taking notes. Worship well means this. Think about a well and that the essence outweighs the form. The essence of a well outweighs the form of a well. Let me see if I can help with this picture. Which one of these wells would you want as a water source? Take a really good look. There's four different wells up there. And I want you to come up with your answer and I want you to give me the why behind it. Now, mind you, in case you can't tell, this one in the upper right, that's near a church. So that might be serving up some holy water or something, right? So that one, that one bears pretty well. This one down here on the left, I mean, Belle could start singing any minute, right? She could come wandering through the quaint French village and, and do it up. Anyone have any thoughts on which one, which one they'd, 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 they'd want to go with? Venture, I guess. Yeah, what do you got, Nico? Which one? Which one? The one that's going to have an alligator jump out of it yeah. in the swamp? Okay, that's a, you're an adventurous guy. I like that. Okay. Heather, did you have a, a raised hand? Number one. Why? Wait, 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 number one up here? How come? Okay, gotcha. So you're not being fooled by appearances. You're like, give me number one. Becky. Say it louder. Anyone else agree with that? The one that serves up the purest water, right? Does it, does it even matter how it looks at all on the outside? If this is your water source, you would go with the one that won't give you dysentery. You would go with the one that would give you the purest water, right? What if the quaint little French village thing dried up a century ago? Who cares what it looks like? Belle, stop singing. I'm thirsty, right? Like, give me the one. So, Back to, back to the point. What's the point of this? What's the essence of worship? It's not the external form. I'll tell you where Christian fights so many times land on. They want to bicker about whether it's in a dry, arid thing and it should, it should have a rack, you know, rickety old thing that we actually bring up a bucket that swings because that's how our ancestors did it. Or whether we should have a more modern pump system that comes up and it's way more efficient to get the water. We never talk about the actual contents of the water. We never talk about what actually matters the most. What is inside is infinitely more important than what is on the outside. This is certainly Jesus' priority in worship. Here's what he does. Jesus turns the conversation to her husband. This is a place of shame for this woman. Because it's not that she's had one failed marriage or even two or even three or four. 
Think about this. Five failed marriages. I mean, let that sit with you for a minute. This is the woman Jesus is talking to. Five failed marriages. And the man she's with now is not her husband. And then, as it is now, that is not okay. Ouch. Who steers the conversation to her dating relationships and failed marriages? Jesus does. Who takes the conversation and does an about 90 degree turn away from that conversation? The woman at the well. Sometimes in our relationship with Jesus, we can only handle so much real. And so we put the brakes on. She does something that's so incredibly common. She steers it to a current controversy. She says, let's stop talking about my, my intimate married life, which isn't so hot and I'm ashamed of. Let's talk about a, a worship controversy. And people in the church love to do this. Sometimes the people that have been most in my ear about, I can't believe we don't use this version of the Bible. I can't believe we don't do that. I can't believe we don't. Time passes on, and sin either leads the way in the door for you, or it follows you behind you in the door. And sometimes some of the loudest people about theological issues in this church's history have had deep, gross, shaming sin. And it's always been about theological kinds of things. John chapter 4, look at verse 20. Our fathers, this is in response to, go get your husband. And him revealing, the one you're with now is not your husband. She says this, next line. Well, our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but but you say that in Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship, Jews, what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But the hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth, for the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. So the woman had her focus all wrong. It was on current controversies. Now, isn't it a good thing that moderns don't ever get hung up on controversies that don't really matter? And don't ever, don't ever settle for this pride of the current times. Thinking that ancient people were such idiots and were so far evolved. And we've come so far because with enough education and technology and know-how, we're so much more advanced. Nonsense. The biblical witness leaves all of us naked in front of God's eyes. We still do the same stuff. Discuss over petty controversies. Verse 21, Jesus turns the conversation from the past to the future. Jesus is ushering in an age that would affect Jews and Samaritans and all Gentiles, every other nation that is non-Jewish alike. She was hung up on forms. What was the form here? Location. Are we supposed to go to this place or that place? Are we supposed to point this way at noonday prayer or that way? Jesus gives the priority, the essence, spirit and truth. Essence and form. Let me just have you do something right now. Uh, In a way that's not annoying or illegal, touch someone near you. Okay, just touch them. There you go. Not annoying. If you were to say you were touched 
by something, you don't mean what just happened, right? If you're touched by a movie, touched by a song, touched by a sermon, it doesn't mean what we just talked about. We are more than our bodies, right? So we're, we're understanding that form and essence is something different, that we can talk in a way that says, no, the essence of it is that it's something different. Absent from today is, is, is discussion about the essence. So much of it lingers on the form instead of going after what is most important. What's form? Location, time, dress code, instruments, songs, volume, tempo, drums in church, right? That used to be a thing. It seems to be less of a thing now. The essence is the heart of the matter. So in Jesus, worship is radically changed. The New Testament describes worship as non-place-oriented and non-event-oriented. Ceremony and season and rituals are not central. What goes on in the heart is. No longer do we go to God, to, to the temple to visit God. He comes to us. And he makes his dwelling place us. So who's the temple of God? Look around you, church family. It's Christians. That means we can worship God anytime, anywhere, anyplace, in all seasons. Not only that, we bring him with us into every place and every time. So what specifically is the essence? Let me say verse 24 again. It's right there. God is spirit, and those who worship him must worship in spirit and truth. Here's the third fill in the blank if you want to write it down. When we think about a well, the deep and best parts, the vital parts, are unseen. So when I show you four wells and you're like, pick one, your life depends on it. You're like, I need more information. I can't tell. How could I possibly know what's going on in that well? You can't. The best parts of worship, the most important parts, the vital parts are unseen. So worship leaders like to talk all the time and say, how was worship today? And a lot of times worship leaders can get hung up on, well, that was a little bit out of tune. We missed that hit. Oh, man. Now, I want you to know, we talk about these things. I think those things can really matter. Amen. We talk them about them as if they're this important and as if the glory of God and what's going on in our own hearts as music leaders in the church is this important. It's not captured in church architecture. True worship's not captured in the number of people clapping. Who cares? How many people tear up? How many people seem to be seriously contemplating the scriptures? How many people raise their hands? How many people are crying? How much jubilation is going on? Now, everything I just mentioned may accompany true worship, but it doesn't define it. It's not the essence of it. Let me give you a few things under this one heading that will help shape this out. Number one is that the inside is more important than the outside. That's what we're saying, right? Outside forms can be on point, and there could be no worship happening. I went to a funeral of my family's uh, years ago, and this was down in Mexico, and we were doing a funeral service, and here's what was fascinating about it. The passages were right out of the Scripture. Great passages were chosen. There were great lyrics to songs that were being sung. There was a call and response. There was an air of reverence in this little Mexican church that my grandpa had pastored for decades. But it turned out that all of that was turned on for the service, and like a water spigot, it just went whoop, 
the second the service was over. There was no reverence for God leading up to the church service, funeral, and there was no reverence for God leading out of it. And yet the very things we were reading were completely true. As a disciple of Jesus, I was deeply moved by hearing what I knew was mostly my non-Christian family that make a mockery of God's word and Jesus say these things out loud, that there's hope in no one else but the risen Jesus Christ. Outward form was on point. Inward, uh, inward reverence seemed to be absent. Why do I say seemed? Because I'm not God. I can't see below the well. I don't know what was going on in my family's heart. Jesus said, you'll know a tree by its fruit. So season after season after season, there ought to be things like the fruit of the Spirit in someone's life who has been saved. Look at some Old Testament worship leaders. Malachi 1.10 says this. Oh, this is God talking to them. Oh, that there were one among you who would shut the doors. Talking about church worship services. That you might not kindle fire on my altar in vain. I have no pleasure in you, says the Lord of hosts, and I will not accept an offering from your hand. What was it that was making God want to shut down the worship service? Here it was. Ready? Laid back worshipers. Worshipers going through the motions. As we just sang, worshipers just singing another song. Worshippers offering cold leftovers to their God. That's what fired God up. We just sang a repentance song. I'm sorry, Lord. I'm sorry for coming and just singing our song. I'm sorry for just doing this out of rote habit. Instead, listen to Revelation 3.16. So because you are lukewarm and neither hot nor cold, I will spit you out of my mouth. This is Jesus talking to the church. Those whom I love, I reprove and discipline. Here's the advice. So be zealous and repent. God commends bold actions done out of passion for God. Acts chapter 5, Ananias and Sapphira. What was happening in that church? People were selling stuff, bringing it to the apostles and doing this giant sacrificial thing. You know what? My stuff doesn't matter anymore. It's our stuff. We're a body. When one part hurts, we all hurt. Well, that must have been some amazing worship services going on. Ananias and Sapphira want to get on the act. Acts 5.1 says, But a man named Ananias and his wife Sapphira sold a piece of property. So far, so good. They saw other people saying, You know what? We don't need that land. We're going to sell it and bring it in. Where did it go wrong? Deep downside. Deep down in where no one else could see except God. Others in the church were worshiping in big extravagant ways. Ananias and Sapphira wanted in on the action. But their motives were exposed. What did they do? They kept back part of the price. They agreed ahead of time to sell it for X, bring part of X, and say, here, this is the land we sold. What happens in that worship service? Call it out. Immediate judgment. Immediate judgment, right? What's the wages of sin? Death. If you ever get a speeding ticket, you ought to receive it with gladness. You know why? You deserve a thousand speeding tickets. Not me. Well, now you're lying. Now it's like doubly so. Sin deserves death. 
once in a great while, this is one of them, God just exacted judgment right then and there, exposed the wickedness in their heart. Can you imagine? I mean, the next Sunday, when they're taking up the offering, there's like a little disclaimer. They're like, this activity may cause death, right? (laughs) So God loves a cheerful giver. (laughs) Man, people are like trembling when they do the offering. Maybe that'd be a good thing. All right, inside is more important than the outside. How about this? Truth is more important than make-believe. I promise you, your friends, your family, your spouse, your kids, your parents, they don't want praise from your lips that means nothing. They don't want to be just told flowery, nice stuff if it's not true. They want truth over make-believe. What did Jesus say? The Samaritans worship a God they didn't really know. That's true today. People make up God in their own image all the time. If your God never counters you, he's probably a God made up in your own imagination. I don't try to make church hurt, but church ought to hurt once in a while. I'm okay with you going, how dare you? I don't get a lot of those, but once in a while, hey, I want to meet with you about your sermon. Okay. Sometimes it's just because I'm an idiot and I said the wrong thing. I'm like, you know what? That was me. I'll own that. Sometimes I'm like, that's kind of in the Bible. It is in the Bible. Like, I don't have any apology for that. That's why our quiet times, reading open-hearted before God, are not so quiet sometimes, right? Man, we're arguing with God. We're saying, wait, can that really be true? Do I really look like that? That's the mirror of Scripture showing you, yes, you do. Change your life. Repent. You're grieving my heart when you call out that you're celebrating. What's the God of this age? We are obsessed with comfort, love, nice, tender, caring, knowing that the future will be okay. That means easy. Success in this life. Your best life when? Now. Delayed gratification only when you're a teenager. After that, we want it now. Can I tell you a little, bit about the, a little bit about the true God according to the Bible? The true God is obsessed with his glory and your sanctification. The true God is loving and good and promises justice. And it makes your mind hurt. How can a God be a God of justice and a God of love? That means he's a God of wrath and a God of love. I think we have the God of love down pat. I don't think we have the God of wrath so much. I'll tell you when the God of wrath becomes really important, when something horrific happens to your daughter. When something truly wicked goes on with your mother-in-law, and you go, how dare they treat my mother-in-law that way? That's when you care about a God of justice. I've heard before, we become what we behold. So what we give our attention to most shapes our thinking and trains our affections. God is alive and powerful and seated on a throne and ruling. And to worship him, to know this, leads to worshiping him alone. And this brings me to the third point that I hope to scare you with a little bit, okay? Exclusive far outweighs inclusive. To many modern ears, this lands as a negative until you remember we are married to God. We're married to God. Is exclusivity in marriage 
vital. Say yes. It is essential that the bride remain faithful to her husband. Church, we are the bride of Christ. Jesus is the groom. Exclusivity far outweighs inclusivity. In fact, at the threat of your life, don't worship another. That's called adultery. Daniel provides this incredible picture in Daniel 3. Nebuchadnezzar answered and said, Blessed be the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who who has sent his angel and delivered his servants, who trusted in him, and set aside the king's command, listen to this, and yielded up their bodies rather than serve and worship any god except their own god. Would you want to pass the test like those three young men? I would. Do you know if you'll pass it? You don't. Until you're faced with the test, you don't know. I sure hope I want to, but I want to train myself every day leading up to those tests to make sure that I pass that test. Satan is seeking to seduce you. Look at what Jesus answers when he's tempted in Luke chapter 4. If you then will worship me, Satan says, it will all be yours. And Jesus answered him, you shall worship the Lord your God and him alone you shall serve. Do I know that exclusivity is inbounds, is a hard fence in the Scriptures? Absolutely, unequivocally, yes, it is. Let me wrap up with number four. Number four is this. At the worship well, drink daily and deeply. Think about what you drank yesterday. I just heard someone asked this morning of one of our staff people, what's your, what's your drink, coffee or tea? And she's like, tea, all the way. Some of you drink a lot of water. Some of you drink a lot of coffee. Some of you drink a lot of boba. <clears throat> There's a little addiction problem in our home, not going to lie. It's a place of honesty and grace. Some of you drink things that have a hold of you and you wish you weren't enslaved to it. We drink a lot. We certainly drink more than an hour and 15 minutes a week. Apply that spiritually. You will remain anemic, ineffective, vulnerable to any and all attack so long as you contain your worship to an hour and a half on Sunday. But I go every week of the year. Awesome. Man, what goes on in here ought to actually create a thirst in us, a thirst for more. We should never be satisfied with what we get on Sundays or at community group. Man, like a well, I love the picture of water. We need it daily. True spiritual worship spills way over the boundaries of Sunday morning. Look at these two verses. 1 Corinthians 10, so whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Colossians 3, and whatever you do. In word or deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through Him. Does that sound like it's describing a Sunday worship service? Does that so- do you read that and say, well, yeah, that means singing at church? Absolutely not. So let's take the word worship and just blow it apart and say this is all of life, all the time, thought, deed, speech. Ben, let me have you come on up. 
We're going to close with singing because God is a singing God. We were created to worship and compelled to worship. The song we're going to sing uh, is a song by a guy named Zach Williams. And when I heard the song, I thought, man, this is the story of the woman at the well. This is her testimony. It finishes, by the way, she goes back to town being a bold witness for Jesus. Come and see the one who knows everything I ever did. Her shame has become her glory because she's found a Savior in Jesus. So as we sing, let's do this uh, unto the Lord. Let's focus on the internals, not the externals.